Right. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, that's not how I was going to start. I was going to start by talking of, about men behaving badly. No, I'm not talking about the reaction to Hogwarts. Not winning. Oh. Uh, not getting any nominations. <laughs> I like to go to this disused factory that burned out. You've been there, um... Laura. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I know the place. Yeah, I, know the place. I, I like to wander around it when it's like getting dark and laugh like a creepy clown, just going. <laughs> <As well. laughs> yeah. Then I hear yeah. chavs and then I hide. The thing about that place is it's so nondescript. I could imagine anything is what that place used to be used for. Yes. I hear that 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 clown laughter. I'm going to assume it used to make clown shoes before a clown burnt it down. Right. It's very plausible. Like so long as no one tells you it was just like what was it like a like a timber yard or I think it's like generic plastic it's like plastic manufacturing because there's yeah. some like plastic pallets melted to the floor or something oh yeah like there's a whole bunch of plastic and they've turned into like rock solid little mountains where it melted yeah. it's great like I filmed some gym positions there last year and um. Filmed the the Silent Hill episode there uh, with the pyramid helmet that he did an amazing job making, like, just overnight. Just incredible. But yes, I was going to start off by talking about Men Behaving Badly, which was a massive sitcom uh, in the 90s in the was UK. It? What? Oh, okay, all right. Yes, yeah. okay, I was going to say, because we got a US version of it and it was not. Oh, ugh. I don't. I don't recall that like doing well. I think it got yeah. like a season, maybe two. Oh right, yeah. Like it got like. Remember, this is Britain, famous right. for mm. like its brevity with TV, um, which not so much these days. But back then, you'd be lucky to get three seasons. Very lucky, and it ran for seven. Um, all right, like it got up like. By British standards, a long run-up. I've just had a look. It had 42 episodes, right. which, again, for a, for a British sitcom of that type, you know, yeah. very You'll few get, get less there. than 20. You know. Meanwhile, here in America, we yeah. got 35 <laughs> episodes with oh, seven yeah, unaired. Wow. So they produced just as many. That's incredible. <laughs> and they only but... aired 35 of them. Now, wow. I can I can guess why. It did star Rob Schneider here. Oh, not quite no. Martin Clunes and Neil Morrissey then. <laughs> not quite. Fucking hell. Um, yes, so it was huge. Um, Fee referred to it as one of them dad shows, which made me instantly turn into Mumra, the ever-living, uh, as I just decayed in front of them. <laughs> uh... Wait, Ken Marino was in it. Now I have to watch it. Holy oh, shit. Oh, fuck. That's a huge step up from Rob Schneider. He pops up in season two as a character oh. named Steve Coprin. Well, oh, that's not from me. the original. I'll have to um, watch it now. Damn it. God damn it. <laughs> it's absolutely the worst whenever I discover escape members in something that's clearly trash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're bound. You're literally yeah. bound by the state. God damn it. Um, but yeah, huge sitcom. I've been going back over it because quite a bit of the jokes hold up, but it is really interesting going back and watching 90s shows. One of the most jarring things, of course, is everybody casually smoking indoors. Mm, <laughs> like, yes. Miss that. Because people yeah. don't even do that in their own home now. It's been so normalized that you smoke outside. 
but they're like like puffing away indoors because that was normal. Like my yeah. fucking mum smokes outside now, and I grew up like choking on fumes. Same thing happened with my mom. Yeah, we're like it, it, one time, one time, sometime in like 1999 or 2000, my grandmother came to a visit out in Arizona, and she was staying for like three weeks. And my mother decided she wasn't going to smoke in the house while her mom was there. And then that was it. It just stopped. Like, I remember it being really normal to, like, back in the day, to, like, if you moved a picture off the wall, it would would, be white. Mm -hmm. And and then you'd realize, oh, the entire wallpaper in the living room has yellowed. Yeah. And it's just not a thing anymore. For the better, of course. Oh, sure. Especially as an asthmatic who grew up... um, with my lungs full of smoke. Um, but the other thing that's really struck me is how what used to be considered rapscallion behaviour or, oh. like, sympathetic. Oh, it's a bit, like, weird, but, like, oh, his heart's in the right place. Because oh, no. uh, one of the central sort of character dynamics is uh, Deborah, the woman who lives upstairs, is being pursued by Tony, the flatmate, uh, you know, one half of the the main two blokes. And the things he does that's played for laughs, I want to take a bunch of clips from Men Behaving Badly and put a horror soundtrack underneath it, because I think just that twist of presentation will turn Men Behaving Badly into a psychological thriller. I I guarantee, like, my very little memory of that show is it is a show about two men who are like, an attractive woman moved in, we both fucking want her. Yeah. And I feel like you a little soundtrack twist on that would... would you wouldn't need much. Yeah. I, well, I mean, Martin Clunes' character, Gary, and uh, his girlfriend, Dorothy, are... Uh, it's not as bad. They do both, like, cheat on each other. A lot of that sort of played for just laughs, which is fine, I guess. But she does casually domestically abuse him a lot. Like, she's just, like, hitting him really harsh and everyone's laughing along. Uh, But Tony, like, oh, my God, Neil Morris's character, he's stalking her. Like, he's following her around and he bugs her apartment in one episode. Oh, my God. He gets really upset and jealous when she gets a girlfriend because he doesn't... And he complains to her that he doesn't want to hear her fucking upstairs in her own home. And, like, when he's knocked back, the audience goes, oh, like he's the sympathetic lovelorn sap. And in the final season, they do get together. And I'm, I'm like, partway through an episode now that I was watching today where, like, he's really, like, possessive and jealous and, again, played for laughs. And... The situation is haunting. It is haunting. I haven't felt this way since I rewatched The League, which is an American sitcom about a fantasy football league, in which the main characters like constantly like skit each other and, and shit talk each other. And when you watch it through a new lens, that also is is a fucking violent psychological thriller. Um, but it's just like an incredible thing. I also got done watching Peep Show, which came in the the 2000s, where the characters are very similar, but they are portrayed as, like, we're supposed to laugh at them, not with them. They're not sympathetic. So it's very jarring to go back a decade where it is 
oh, they're just scamps. This is just what, like, men do. It's so typical of blokes. And it just goes to show, like, what happened when there were very few voices outside of, of cishet men in media, especially in the fucking BBC. Uh, just just incredible. Um, so, yeah, just just found it interesting. Thought I'd bring that to the f- to the forum today. Um, smoking indoors and stalking. That's that was that was the nineties. <laughs> yeah, welcome, Ow. welcome, folks. I've hurt oh. the hand again. Oh no! I tried. I've got a broken Manta Man from Manta Force. His legs came off. Oh no! And I've got the broken arm of the Supernaturals figure that I broke on Jimquisition. And I, for some reason, I was trying to shove the Manta Man into the hand. To make it be held by by the bit that broke, and it slipped, and where the plastic broke on the Manta Man, it's a bit sharp, and it just dug into my finger. Ow, that's fucking twice now on this show. This show's dangerous. I should file a fucking complaint. These are these are <laughs> dangerous working conditions. Yeah, they are dangerous working conditions here on Podquisition. We talk about video games. Yes, there we go. There's a smooth little segue <laughs> in there. Look at that. Oh man, that that was like lightning out of. A, <laughs> Cup. Who's played stuff this week? <laughs> <laughs> Who's played the most? Laura's played yeah. the most. Okay, I yeah, I played a few things. Okay. I've been putting some time this week into uh the new Yakuza game that just came out. Ah. Uh, it's not called they're not called Yakuza anymore. It's the Like a Dragon, which I think was the Japanese name of the series. Right. So this is <clears throat> Like a Dragon, Gaiden, the man who erased his name. Which, I love it. Sure. It sure is a title. I fucking love it when games get like showy with their titles. I always, I, I, I always bring up a machine for pigs. The, yeah, the Amnesia and... sequel. I, the man who erased his name is lovely. Yeah, look, I, I, I could take a lot of the, the name out of this, but the man who erased his name is a fucking great title. Yes. Um, so. This is a little bit shorter of a, of a Yakuza game than some of the others in sort of the main series. It's not like the next big numbered Yakuza, but it is a little side story that um, it's basically bridging the gap to like the next big Yakuza that's coming like spring next year. Um, like my my entry point to Yakuza as a series was I got really into Like a Dragon, uh, just called Like a Dragon, which was the JRPG entry in the series that happened around when the the new console generation was starting. I still need to play that because I got I didn't finish the main series and told myself I couldn't start it, even though it's like a, a its own thing. One hundred percent. Like I I understand that. I I jumped in really at that point and I went back and played some of the older ones. But like, so I I got in on the silly little JRPG one. Uh, if you're looking for a place that isn't the start of the series to like jump into the other protagonist, Kiryu, and go, what's his deal? Why should I be invested in him to like get you to stick with the earlier ones? This is a really good game for that, because uh, the man who erased his name is basically kind of a retelling of the main six Yakuza games, bridging the plot into like the, the, the next JRPG game. Right. The the protagonist of all the punchy brawly ones is gonna be in the next RPG one, so they're giving you a little story about him to go. Hey, do you, do you want to know what the fuck his deal is? You can you can learn about that. Um, and specifically, it's like a story that is taking place simultaneously with the first JRPG one. So it is 
you're going through events from a different perspective and that's how you're going to sort of lead to the sequel. It is, as ever, a really fun, just little 3D brawling game that is, like, not overly difficult to play through, has a lot of silly little side content. Um, I've been getting pretty, like, deep in the weeds on, like, doing all the side quests on this. I've come to learn that the the, the way I want to play a Yakuza game is to put off the main plot for as long as possible, running around doing absolutely silly nonsense uh, side quests that make no fucking sense, uh, go, going around... Uh, there was one where I had to steal a golden ball using a tether from the underwear of a man dancing on the front of a boat that appeared every now and then. I fucking I love time... that series. <laughs> yeah, I had to time a shot with like a grappling hook to steal the golden ball that he'd like hidden in his in his golden underpants. Brilliant. Uh, the, the series fucking bonkers. I love mm-hmm. it. Um, there's a few things that like if you've played some of the the Kiryu like numbered Yakuza games before that are like nice little changes. Um. They have added a couple of new twists to uh, some of his combat styles, because, like, the whole thing is, at any time in combat, you can swap between a couple of different movesets. Uh, It's basically light attack, heavy attack, and uh, modifier, but what those do depends on what style you're in. He's got a new style that is basically uh, uh, combat using gadgets, where he's, like, summoning in drones to do little mini-gunfire at enemies, and, like, throwing fake cigarettes that if they an enemy tries to get them, they'll explode at them. Uh, fun, silly little nonsense. Um, but generally speaking, like, playing through this game, the experience has been become overpowered, do kicks that have fire coming off of them, and destroy mobs of enemies in, like, a single spinning kick, and then go... I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example of a side quest. Go teach a teenager that following chat GPT for dating advice is going to get him killed. I'm enjoying this a lot. I think it does a pretty good job of going, hey, if you have no idea who Kiryu is, you can jump in here and that's fine. Yeah. The main thing I think this is missing, at least from where I'm at in it right now, is a lot of the bigger main Yakuza games will tend to have a couple of... They'll tend to have, like, one really big side quest that is, like... Uh, in in the JRPG one, it is a business management simulator where your shareholder meetings are Pokemon battles. Yeah. And it's a whole thing you can put, like, eight hours into. Um, This doesn't have that I've seen one of those. And um, all of your side quests are, like, given from... A lot of them are, like, handed out by one NPC rather than being you stumbled upon this because you went to place. It's missing a couple of little things that I like from, from the main Yakuza games. But it's a pretty good jumping in point. Like, if if you're someone who wants to get into Yakuza and, like, it's a daunting number of games, play the JRPG and then hop over to this one, and y- you'll have seen, like, okay, I get what the series is. I'm having a lot of fun with it. I, I am enjoying its intensely overly serious melodrama. I like how overly serious it gets while being, like, seconds away from something very nonsensical you did. That's um, one of the best things of the series, is it's so... <sighs> so bonkers and often like stupid in a good way and then suddenly they'll hit you with some drama that you're like wow i'm like really absorbed and invested in this yeah yeah yeah. like i i had a moment at some point while playing this where i had to put on some silly clown makeup for a side quest and then i accidentally triggered a conversation that led to quite an emotionally serious moment when i'd just been running around like 
do to do here I am a clown let's have a conversation about the fate of these orphans in the orphanage and how you're going to keep them safe at the expense of your own safety like how much of your life are you willing to sacrifice to keep these children safe you can't do this forever can you really keep this up anyway silly clown times yeah yeah it's it's good and they always um, do I mean, it with like a, a protagonist uh, who like especially Kiryu who's just like a straight up rock solid bloke who doesn't judge and despite being super serious, just goes along with everything. And and it's right. just brilliant. He's not above anything. No. And despite being the super cool character, he is willing to be put through utter humiliation and come out cooler for it because, yeah. because he just fucking weathers it. And he... Yeah. It's brilliant. For any problems that some of the earlier games in that series have and occasionally oh, are yeah. slightly iffy, by the time that series gets a bit a bit further in, any time they've made a bit of a misstep with representation of a group in the past, there will be a storyline eventually of Kiryu going, Ah, oh, I was a bit shitty in the past, let me help out a member of that group and be nice and like, you know, come to He's just a good guy. He's a rock solid bloke. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Ichiban, the, uh, the, the protagonist of the, uh, the JRPG ones is similarly just, I would do anything to protect you, you wholesome man. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've been having, I've been having fun with this slightly shorter one, uh, take it absolutely just doing every single side quest because I don't want this game to be over, despite the fact that I do, I, I was going to say, you, it's been easier for me to stick, stick with the side quests in this because, how do I put this? Because this is happening concurrently with the JRPG one that released a few years ago, I know how Kiryu's story is going to end in this. Because I I have seen him pop up in the JRPG one, and I know what that means. Yeah. So I'm not quite as on holding my breath going, will how will this work out? And it means I can be like, I can enjoy the melodrama and then not feel that time pressure. I can be like, no, I'm just going to go do silly stuff for a while and not go, yeah, but I need to save the orphanage. Uh, So yeah, I've been enjoying that. Um, Who else has been playing stuff this week? I have a game that I started playing um, shortly before we started recording. And Mm -hmm. I think it's relevant to, it's possibly relevant to both of your interests. Okay. Possibly. It's called Karma Zoo. And uh, Devolver publish it, and it's brilliant. It's it's a puzzle platformer where you randomly are assigned with other players, about ten, and you partake in side-scrolling platformer puzzles cooperatively without speaking to each other. You're supposed to just help people of your own volition you jump on a little switch to open the door and let people through it's like it's politeness simulator there are like spike traps and you can throw yourself on them and where you die you leave a tombstone that the others can jump on you have to stick Mm. close together and that creates this little bubble around you all and if you travel on your own too far you're the little bubble around you will pop and you end up as a ghost and can't play again till the next level. So it does encourage you to stick together. Every Hmm. time you do something that helps everyone progress, you get given karma hearts, which you spend on little animals and objects that you can transform into and play as. 
so you start off as a little blob, just a, a sh- just a little round splodgy slime. And there are all sorts of wacky things, like, and they each have their own little gimmick. On the really cheap rung of characters, there's an armadillo that is immune to spike traps, so you can just roll over those no problem. Uh, there is an umbrella, and you can open the umbrella to protect people from, like, little drippy things from the ceiling that would do damage, or searchlights that would, like, kill you if they see you. And other players can, like, huddle underneath that. So if there's a searchlight rotating round and a little uh, leave, like a little button that someone has to stand on to let people go through the door, the umbrella can come along and create the canopy over the other player. And you just suss that out as you play. And obviously, if someone's playing as the Umbrella, like they're going to be on the lookout for opportunities to do that. I haven't played it yet, but I just unlocked a bell, because I saw it, and I'm, I want to be a little bell, which can shatter glass. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that works um, in the oh. game. Every single playable creature sings, because there are certain objects that, like, there are these little, like, bell devices that act as switches if you sing, and you can direct the, um, like, a cone of sound from your character 360 degrees. So you, like, point at the thing you want to activate and sing at it, and every character sounds a bit different, and it's fucking adorable. Uh, like, the little blobs, like, as when you press the sing button, it's just going, wah, 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 wah. And the armadillo like plays a little didgeridoo noise um, and bounces on its tail. It's really cute. Um, and yeah, like I'm not sure if it's randomly generated yet, but the idea is you keep going on runs that are about I think like five levels. Um, in between levels, you well in in levels there are fruits that you collect, and the more fruit you get, the more bonus cards are unlocked between levels. And these bonus cards will give you, well, they'll give you a bonus in the next level. And some of those are fairly straightforward, like the fruit is magnetized, and so it will, you know, be pulled into you so you don't have to bounce and get them. Or certain, there, there are things, like, like secrets in the level will get revealed. And then there are some wacky ones, like useless hints. And if everyone votes for it, because it's all voted, then you will get useless hints, just little pop-ups that are things like, you really don't know what you're doing, do you? Or, why not try shutting your mouth for all eternity at any given opportunity? Just, just weird little messages. Some of them are like guest saxophonist or guest drummer, and the next level will just have added drum music or sax music. <laughs> And then there are, like, the ones that everyone goes for, like, you know, just 50 free karma hearts or collecting fruit gives you karma. So, unfortunately, like, I've only gotten two of the really wacky ones so far, the hints and the guest drummer. I was really gutted that I was the only one who voted for the saxophonist. I really want to hear that. Like, that's <laughs> going to be my white whale now. Uh, one of them is pizza time, which just changes the fruit into slices of pizza. And the puzzles are, are just great. It's really simple. It's just a lot of, like, pushing buttons, getting keys, opening doors, all of that kind of thing. But visually, it's it's superb. Mm. 
oh, there is a game it makes me think of, but I can't fucking remember it now. But it's got this very oh, like I think like the pixel cat games that were like on mobile and stuff, where mm. the platforming levels are like big sort of garish colors that stand out against a black background and the pixel art's lovely like the the characters the little playable characters are so simplistic but really well defined and the animations do just enough to make them like really endearing and cute i love the little noises they make and and yeah like and and it's so intuitive is the is the thing, which is what you want from a game where everyone's just thrown together and silently communicating. Like people have worked out that if they found a secret and the other players aren't like going with them, they can just point in the direction they want to go and just hammer the singing button. And then you're like, oh shit, they need me to go that way. Uh, so you do. This is reminding me a lot of um, how I felt playing specifically the like search for the hidden things levels in Mario Wonder. Yes. With other players online. And that was one of my favorite things about that game. And this sounds like it's hitting a similar kind of feel. Yeah, it's it's basically like, what if we designed a game around that? So it wasn't mm. just like pointing to other players where uh, a puzzle piece is. This is taking that concept of incidentally thrown together yeah. players and making them solve puzzles based around that kind of stuff. Um, and it's, it's genius. Like I have only played for like maybe an hour and I've been blown away. I've just been like, this is one of those games that is deliciously simple. The kind of simple that lends itself to just being brilliant because it's how can we take this rudimentary concept what how many things can we do with it that's one of my favorite things to see in a game not i mean it's games that are full of different ideas is is cool you know we saw a lot of that with with mario wonder but i'm always more impressed by what if we had one central idea and we found myriad ways of using that mm. and that's i think what they've done because it's like it's like they've thought what if what if journey but a puzzle platformer where you like use that wordless bumping into people to to progress together and you you really get a sense for these you don't even see their names except at the very beginning lobby and the very end so eventually that None of you feel like you have names or anything, but you do get to know each other and get yeah. this real sense of camaraderie just for as long as it lasts. Um, there are hosted games as well, so I think you can like play together with friends. But mm. I'm really enjoying the the anonymity of it. It's like yeah. it's like a gaming glory hole, <laughs> and I just had to take a really wholesome game and ruin it. Um, but no, yeah, it's you've, so good. You've, you've... You've really sold me on this. Uh, as you were talking about it, I looked at some screenshots and some footage, and I've already purchased and downloaded it while we're, oh, while we're here. Brilliant. Yeah, I that, think that, you're going to love it. That is the kind of thing I really I really dig when games are used for stuff like this. Yeah. So, yeah. And then just wrapped up into it is just this lovely, silly sense of humour. Um, every time you start a new run, there's this uh, voiceover narrator who, like, a run is called a totem, 
and there's a, another type of game called a loop. And if you just switch from back and forth, he they found so many ways to say those two words with increasing stupidity. Um, yeah, it's just a very silly game with a brilliant concept that is executed it with perfect simplicity. Um, one of those games with with like a purity of vision, as I like to sort of describe mm. certain games as, that's just fucking nailed it. So, yeah, I, I'm finding... I always struggle to just say I recommend a game because I don't like telling people how to spend their money. Yeah. But this is so such an easy game to recommend, to just be like, oh, yeah, I think you'll have a fucking blast with that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I had a feeling it would immediately appeal to you, Laura. Um, I think Conrad, you'd, I think you'd really dig this too. Something tells me it's a very streamable game. It probably Um, is. I, it's the multiplayer element of it. It's one of those things that sounds good for someone else. Right. Like, (laughs) fair. I liked Journey. Right, I thought I played Journey, and I thought this is a very clever, interesting concept. But I could have just played something by myself, you right. know. And mm-hmm. this is not the same in that you couldn't play this by yourself. But then my 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 enjoyment is somehow predicated on someone else, and I, I don't see. like putting that pressure on people to make me happy because I know that's, that's what they fair. care about. Not to sell it to you, because, yeah, as you've explained it, this might not be your speed setting. But one thing that has struck me, because I often feel pressure in a multiplayer situation, even if it's with a complete random, I don't want to disappoint them. And I, you know, I take that, whether I'm gaming or fucking, I try and, like, maintain that sort of... I want to impress this person. Well, that's why I I only play games with people that I know when I play multiplayer, which is extremely rare. But yeah, yeah, with this, as someone with a lot of anxiety, um, it doesn't feel pressuring Mm -hmm. because it's such a laid-back game anyway. And because if you've got a full game, there's 10 of you bouncing around, um, the only real pressure is on... It's almost like competitive helpfulness because hmm. you get karma if you help the others. So sometimes you do feel like, oh, I want to make sure I land on that button before anyone else because I want some hearts. Um, so it's it's like, yeah, competitive politeness. <laughs> <laughs> but you still end up with like a decent amount of hearts, even if you're not like fully pulling. And because there's 10 of you bouncing around, you can sort of get lost in the shuffle a little. You end up feeling like part of a collective whole, mm-hmm. um, which is just really interesting. You feel great for helping out, but you don't feel like you're letting them down. There is something delightful about that idea of like just the the social element and and the psychology behind. I'm going to be more helpful than you are. Like that. Yeah. Just like, I'm going to be helpful <laughs> first. It's like. Um, Okay. Yeah, malicious positivity. Right. Well, yeah, but, but is it is it uh, is it altruism if you're doing it to achieve your own end? Yeah, I mean, you could like get into the weeds on this right? actually. Like yeah. for as simple a game as it is, I was initially almost a bit disappointed with that. Where I'm like, 
The game's been sold very much on selflessness, but I am doing this for a reward. Mm -hmm. I think the way they've done it is about... It's kind of how you have to do it with random online play. Like, you're going to have to incentivize people to not be selfish, because otherwise it it would stop being a game about selflessness and helpfulness. Sure. If everyone just starts thinking, fuck it, I'm in it for myself. But that's that's some real, you know, capitalist brain worm poisoning right there it's like well you know people will only do something if they see a reward in it for them that is true and so maybe i'm not disappointed with the game per se but with society (laughs) um or well i don't know or or our expectation like the game this game is never going to be like a big big deal game i wouldn't expect i mean you know there's a chance that it uh, there's an outside chance that some popular streamers run in it blows up somehow and and bully for them should that happen yeah but if you know that your product is going to be a little more niche you can also afford to be a little more experimental in that regard and i do i i you know we say oh it's a failing society but to a certain extent it's a little sad to be in the position of the developer and feel that you would have to do that yeah. You know, yeah. now that's not a criticism of them in any way, but it is a little bit sad. It is. I think that does melt away as you play it, mm-hmm. just because it's really well designed, fucking tightly designed. Mm. And it is still really fun just to help, like just to feel like I'm contributing mm-hmm. and I don't feel like I super have to, because you do still like passively get karma. And at the end, your total karma is um, pulled for a bonus, which is then contributed to a giant karma pot that every online player is contributing to that you get a slice of on the regular, which I really like. So, like, everything you're doing is still contributing to a greater good. I think they've taken the limitations that they have to with the need to incentivize pulling together. But in doing so, they really have given their best shot at really showing the benefit of people coming together to help each other get through a situation. So I think they've done their best to turn that disappointing limit that I had into as much of a positive as you can get Mm -hmm. in a game that is overwhelmingly good-hearted and fun and and funny i don't think i can say enough good things about it it did crash on me once so i am going to keep an eye on that i'm playing on the switch um personally but i am going to keep an eye on that but as far as the actual design of the game goes chef's kiss and that's just after about an hour and i was instantly i was won over in the fucking tutorial because that was really fun like, just in terms of, of how good-natured and, and funny it was. Um, they've done a great job of just keeping you engaged at every level, whether it's the actual puzzles uh, or the gimmick or the humour or just the, the characters. Like, I was a little bit like Kid in a Candy Store. Like, just dozens of, of funny little animals or objects um, that I'm mostly picking not based on their skills, but, like, just whether they're cute. Like, I, I saw the bell, and I'm like, I want to be a little bell. 
and just ring a ding ding. Um, but there's all sorts: pig, f- frog, <laughs> you know, duck, uh, flora. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. Fucking nice. Great. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take us in almost the exact opposite direction. Oh, uh, I've been looking forward to this. Um, I have played Alien Hominid Invasion now after discussing it last week, and um, mm-hmm. you're not wrong. Oh, I love that inflection. You're not <laughs> wrong to find this incredibly frustrating. Yeah. But I do think to a certain extent, some of that is a function of your interests and desires relating to this. For sure. I don't think it's poorly designed. It is chaotic, to say the least. And it is, it's a game that is built to overwhelm you um, quite clearly with intent. It does feel very, very built for multiplayer. Um, I've only been playing it single player. And it's not that I haven't had success. Um, did you clear a run of it when you played Steph? No, I have deleted it. I've I've gotten to the end of a run and I that boss fight was it was so it was almost like to the point of sensory overload. It was so fucking mm-hmm. I couldn't process what was going on. Yeah, and I think that that's if if you struggle with being able to focus in when there is a whole lot of on-screen chaos, you're not going to have a good time with this. Um, I do think that, like, I keep coming back to it. I have I have put in quite a few hours just sort of casually in the evening. I'll pick it up and do a run before bed. And I don't know if it's good necessarily but i do find it fun and oddly compelling on my second run i i I did clear it uh that first boss fucking hell you're so good at games i hate it well i don't know about that (laughs) but it you're better than me but there's well it depends on the game because you put me in in a first person shooter situation and you'll wipe the floor with me any day of the week those are just not my thing but the bosses have way too much health. Like, it takes forever to clear a boss fight if you're in single player. I don't know how it scales in multiplayer, but it just doesn't feel like it should be taking this much time to get through a boss encounter. And it just feels a bit like a slog. That said, I, I, I will say there is a, a fair bit of quick thinking strategy that comes into this game in terms of like identifying threats when they come in and prioritizing them uh finding the fastest ways to eliminate enemies this game is very speed focused the faster you can complete the objectives the easier it will be to complete subsequent objectives because the difficulty of enemy waves is at a constant increase i find that pressure to be very enjoyable I enjoyed figuring out that, oh, you know, in these sorts of encounters, if I make better use of riding around on enemies, because you're invincible when you're riding around on something, that's how you can avoid a lot of damage and clear the field from projectiles and so forth. I don't get the dig ability. Oh, I found it crucial. Yeah? 
like digging underground because it removes state assailments. So mm-hmm. if you're on fire, digging underground will do that. If you do what I did and like load up on lifesteal weapons and regen mm-hmm. um, heads, ducking under there to regen while you can is really useful. Mm-hmm. And just avoiding damage, like especially if I'm trying to make an escape, like it's quicker to obviously just jump and dive, jump and dive, jump mm-hmm. and dive. But sometimes where I'm like, there is just fucking gouts of flame everywhere. It's also good for ambushing, like going under and then popping up where there's a little cluster of enemies and it sends them flying. It does have its uses, but I think a very skilled player, or at least comparable to me, might not have as much a use for it because they might, if you're better at avoiding damage, a lot of its use won't come up for you. Right. But it does have very good tactical applications. Like the guys with the big shields that you know will reflect bullets back which are actually really useful for killing everything behind you but dealing with them i find them to be really probably because their jump their height is just high enough that you get one jump clearance with your double jump to get over them and they turn around really quick i'm wondering if using the dig to get around to the other side of them is is more efficient i beat that first boss and it took me a lot of runs to finally beat the second one and then I beat the third right away. So I'm on the th- the third loop consecutive now um, on it and building quite a bit of, of equipment. I've got, I do think lifesteal is clutch in this game. I have a weapon with it. I've got the mutation. There's a mutation that you get that um, its active attack is it just launches you forward across the screen. And if you hit an enemy, you kill them and get health which I really like. That's fun. Um, And if you hit someone with armor, it just takes their armor off, which I also like. Uh, Armored enemies suck, but uh, I do think that there's, it's, it's, again, it's a prioritization and a realizing what you're hit, what you're up against, and then quickly adjusting tactic. Um, I love hopping on flying enemies and just throwing them to the ground for instant kill. I'm having fun with it. Yeah. But it uh there are times too where I had an instance in a run the other day where I I was fighting some guys, I did a roll, I died, I had to respawn and I I spawned back in and I was right in front of a shotgun guy who just shot me and it was death because he happened to hit me with like three of the three or four of the projectiles, the range was that close and it just wiped me instantly so uh i could definitely see some frustration and some moments of wait what happened um because there is just too much to keep track of but i don't think it's bad i do think there's something kind of oddly compelling to it uh it feels good to win but i don't know how much of that is just a function of the sheer sense of attrition that you're engaging in when you do these final boss fights they don't feel fun after a point they just feel long because you can find a couple of things that you can do to account for any of their attack patterns and then you're just doing it forever i do think it's interesting that you'll have the occasional mid-boss encounter and it is the boss yeah from the end of the stage that's kind of neat. 
as a concept. Mm-hmm. I haven't quite beaten a boss in that because they soak so much and it is a limited time thing. I like that if you lose a life in that encounter, it just ends the encounter and moves you on as though the objective had been completed. It's nice that it's not going to like keep punishing you and force you to fight this boss to completion at a mid-boss point. I like it. It feels like Alien Hominid in terms of the amount of chaos. It doesn't feel as as difficult overall, just on the basis that I've been able to finish three runs of this now. But, um, God, it's charming. And the animations, when you have time to, like, look at them, which is rare, are so fun. Um, this is another one of those things that, um, because it's a very looty game, right? It's It's all about the loot that you, that you pick up along the way and because all of these weapons have different stat options and you don't know what they're going to be until you look at them whenever you find one of these kids in the environment that like offers you a different gun and you're you're expected to stop and look and read the stats while everything else is fucking going on around you and there's no real pause in the action to determine whether or not you want this weapon, and if you pick it up, you're stuck with it for the rest of the level. Yeah. That's just silly. (laughs) It's just silly. Why are we doing this? What is the point? Who has the time? Um, It's fun. It's worth checking out. I am enjoying it. But uh, if, if you don't go in for a highly chaotic environment, if you have struggle focusing in when there is just way too much visual information in a game um give it a pass for sure uh i started playing a new thing this week that i've only put a couple of hours into but it's feeling pretty charming right now and i am excited to to sink some more time into it i am playing a game called backpack hero and the best way i can explain this is it is a roguelike turn-based RPG where your primary means of becoming stronger is getting to increase the size and shape of your Resident Evil 4 style um, inventory. You go on short little runs and you've got like specific runs that might be like, hey, start with this starting equipment and if you get to the end of a couple of floors you'll unlock this reward. Um, But generally speaking... You have a little map of the current floor you're on, and there'll be, you know, uh, treasure chests to find and little bits of combat to do. But you can only carry as much loot uh, as you have space for in your bag. And every time you level up, you get to add four cubes uh, to your, your inventory space. And you get to pick how you want to expand that size. Uh, and that is important for a couple of reasons. So your inventory is where all of the things you're going to be using during your turn-based battles are kept. Uh, So if you want to be able to, for example, like uh, deal damage, uh, heal up with items, have a shield to give yourself some like defense from incoming attacks, uh, those will all be things that uh, will take up an amount of space and be a certain shape in your inventory but will also take up a certain number of action points to use in a turn. And sometimes the trade-off there is this thing is larger and taking up more of your bag, but it's doing better damage for fewer of your action points in a turn, uh, so you're trying to sort of uh, micromanage those elements. But the other thing is there's a lot of like 
adjacency bonuses and weird little rules about if you organise your bag like this, you'll get these little bonuses. And that might be things like, hey, this item's really cool, but it's heavy. So whenever you try and put it in your bag, you can't put it anywhere but the bottom row of your bag, because it's too heavy, it'll sink to the bottom. Or if this item is next to uh, weapons, any weapons next to this sort of glowing power stone will get bonus damage. Or uh, you get this bonus if this item is in your bag and there's nothing adjacent to it. Um, or this shield gets more defense based on how many columns there are available to the left of it. Uh, and all of these little overlapping rules end up leading to this weird little game of Tetris where you are trying to min-max not just how much you can take with you, but how you organize it to best get the the bonuses you have. And at the end of every fight, you get a little selection of items to go, cool, you can take up to three of these with you, find a place for them in your bag, chuck the stuff you don't want, off you keep going. It is a pretty short and simple, like, runs are not particularly long. Like, I've not yet seen a run of this game that is more than three floors of exploration deep. And there's a lot of, like, things to be found that are not just combat as you go through it. I have had the implication I am going to be developing some some mechanic that will let me go further down and get longer runs. But right now it's nice little short runs. Once you beat the big boss at the end, you go back to a town. And you're trying to sort of build up this town with uh, all of the things that you collected while on your dungeon runs can be turned into resources to make... Um, a farm that'll give you uh, food to, to to bring more villages in and more houses for people. And uh, maybe you make a little magic school and then you can start doing uh, getting magical items when you go on these, these little dives into the depths. And it's not since playing something like Hades that I have felt... Maybe that's not the right call. Cult of the Lamb might be the better comparison. In terms of like how I feel like the split of time between going on my excursion and then getting back to town and doing all my little being in town tasks for a while is. It's very charming, and I like the the core gameplay loop. Like, I've not put a huge amount of time into this, but the way that you have to balance those those dual needs of trying to have a variety of, of tools for a variety of situations in your backpack during these, these quests, but also have things that are going to ha synergize with each other, but also enough space to make the most use of that and still have room to take treasure with you on your way out. It's really fun. It's a simple idea done very well. So yeah, I'm going to put more time into it and probably come back with, uh, to talk more about it next week, but Backpack Hero's pretty charming. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Steph, you played anything else this week? Uh, I played <clears throat> a game from a long time ago. I think it was like PS3 360 era I, I am pretty sure i was in the uk the first time around when it came out it's a tecmo koei game called bladestorm uh the mm. hundred years war which is based on the hundred years war um it's really for like less for hardcore gamers more for raging core gamers <laughs> oh shoot me Solid game, interesting concept. Um, you are a mercenary, and these big battles are taking place across really fucking huge map. And you join up with different units 
of soldiers mm. that have their own weapon type. So, like, there'll be a unit of, of bowmen, a unit of people with a short, sword and shield, a unit of soldiers with, like, halberds. And you can switch from unit to unit by, like, going up to them, pressing X, and then suddenly you're in control of that unit. And you're in control of them as a collective. So you're essentially, like... Using movement controls as if it were for a single character, but it is steering a whole bunch of soldiers. When you see enemy soldiers, you can hold down a button to rush forwards, engage with them, and as you hold that down, based on like the attack frequency of the unit, they will automatically just start fighting the other ones. And then each unit has like three skills that you activate that are on a cooldown you know like if you've got polearm soldiers there's like scythe and you press that button and they all sweep forward at the same time like with the weapons and deal extra damage um or like they could raise their attack stat or if they've got shields they can protect themselves there's some rock paper scissors going on different units have different strengths and weaknesses you know, a lot of ground soldiers are weak against the horseback ones who can just charge through them. And the idea is you're taking over enemy bases while protecting your own. So you go into a base, there are a bunch of units connected to that base. You take out as many units as you need to get the commander unit to appear. And then you kill the base commander and you've taken over that base. And as a mercenary... It doesn't matter who's winning and losing to you. The idea is to fulfil your contract and earn renown by just doing really well and, and doing better than everyone else. It's a really good concept. The game is a bit of a mess. Uh, controls are a little weird. Uh, well, I mean, they're really good for what they're trying to do, actually. Um, but it can feel a little awkward, especially when, um, like individual soldiers get separated because if you're going across a bridge and the unit is very wide soldiers will just catch on something and then if you don't stop they won't catch up until you stop um you can press a button to get them to tighten formation but again if they're like behind you're going to have to stand still and wait for them to catch up or go get into a fight and hopefully they'll have caught up by some point um it's at the time I played it, it, it was like, yeah, this is good, very flawed, a bit fucking clunky, but solid. And I was surprised because I thought it would have aged to a point where I wouldn't be keen. But I, I re-downloaded it yesterday after, God knows, they re-released it on PS4 with a an additional scenario, and I haven't played it since then. Um, but I was really kind of enjoying it. It's it's easy to the point of you're less feeling like you're in a, a strategy action game and it's almost got like a it's almost got like a casual game a casual mobile game to it and when i say that i don't mean in the pejorative sense i mean there's something kind of satisfying about charging your unit into another unit and wiping them out before moving on to the next one um it's just got that kind of real, yeah, just this, this very, um, it's it's good feedback 
which I really like. And between things, between between missions, you can level up. Uh, what you do is you level up your mercenaries experience with individual units. So you can choose the one you like and just put all of your skill points into that. You level them up as a big blanket level and then they have individual stats that you level up separately. So you can just make your favourite unit type, which are separated into very broad weapons, weapon types. Uh, although within those weapon types, there are uh, individual units that don't need levelling up. Uh, you can just pick what you like. A lot of that's just aesthetic. Like, do you want Vikings with swords or do you want like more European knights with swords, that kind of thing? And as you level them up, like, like if you level up leadership, you get more soldiers in a unit, um, which is one of the best ones, because by the time you're commanding a little small army on its own, um, that's just really cool. Uh, you can get multiple mercenaries and switch between them, but I don't think the game has quite enough strategy to do things like encouraging you too much to switch units on the fly or switch characters because one thing they try and push in the tutorial is the rock paper scissors thing of if there's a unit coming up that's too strong but there is a unit next to you that's strong against them you can switch over but the thing is is i like my polearm soldiers and they are so leveled now because i focused on a lot of my skill points on that, despite, again, the game telling you to maybe try an even spread so you can be flexible on the battlefield. But you don't need to be if you are fighting level four units with a level 30 unit of your own. It doesn't matter if you're weak against them. Once you clash with them and you throw a couple of your active skills at them, they're fucking toast. So it is currently at a point where I'm feeling a little bit like this is trivial and the real challenge is just in how well can i do how many bases can i capture within the time limit you know before nightfall comes how can i maximize this to get an s rank at the end so that's good but and also just the anime-fied way this game represents the hundred years war there's something very weird about seeing prince edward of england Presented as this, like, l flowing long-haired, fancy ornate-armoured bishonen. When it's like, no, that's a British royal. He is supposed to look hideous and be detestable. That's the point of them. But, you know, he looks like he could have been in fucking Final Fantasy or something. It's very jarring, as a British person, who knows British history, to be like, <laughs> this guy doesn't look like an inbred pervert. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong? But yeah, and it's got like different famous characters, most notably Gilles de Retz. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar with Gilles de Retz. No. He was a French nobleman, and you can like see him on battlefields, and I think he's got like some cutscenes if you're like dicking around on the French side of the war, because you can just per contract go for either side. He did fight with Joan of Arc, who's also in the game. But he's mostly known for his uh, failed attempts at summoning a demon, which involved a lot of child murder. Oh. The last time I played this, because uh, I've known about 
Gilles de Retz has, uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, because I've always had this bizarre fascination with, with historical monsters. I remember playing, like, through the game last time, just thinking, they're not going to mention it, are they? They're not going to mention the whole demon summoning, serial killing of a lot of kids. I mean, a lot of kids. Like, he'd give Harold Chipman a run for his money, and Harold Chipman went after ones that couldn't run. So, I don't want to say hats off, but he was a real fucking monster, according to sort of historical popular record. There have been some people since that have been trying to argue the case that it was a fit-up, but it's just a very weird thing to see, to see this genuine historical figure who I've only ever known as a child-murdering, monstrous tyrant of a man. Because he was a a dick all round, like, Hmm. fucking took over castles owned by the clergy and was just like, this is mine now, uh, reneged on debts. Was one of the richest fucking lords going, apparently. And yet, his he couldn't afford his own lifestyle, so that's why he was like reneging on deals and things. Utter dick. And he's just presented as just like, if not heroic, just like, another one of the soldiers and it's so weird to me i'm like did did tecmo koei know who this guy was because uh, i always <laughs> know him from uh, a really horrible story about like disemboweling someone and just sitting on the in on the entrails uh that's always the first thing i think about i don't think what a great ally to have in a video game <laughs> Uh, but there wow. you go. That's Bladestorm for you. Yeah. Uh, well, I will probably leave the other game bits I played until next week. Should we do some, uh, some news? I don't see why not. Why not? Um, in a move that really shouldn't surprise anyone, um, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 came out a little while back, and... From all from all accounts, it's uh, it's not that good. Its campaign is weirdly short and not very impressive, and there's just a lot of weirdness about it. Uh, and we now know maybe a little of what what was going on there. Uh, we have a report from Bloomberg that uh, claims that Modern Warfare Three was developed in just sixteen months. Oh, Whoa! Fuck. Yep. Uh, 16 months is roughly half the time that a Call of Duty game usually gets to be developed. There's a bit more to it. The short version is, originally it was gonna just to be DLC for Modern Warfare 2. Oh my god. And at some point, they'd started working on it as as DLC that was gonna be set in just in Mexico, like in a single location. Right. You know, a, a scaled back follow-up that would, you know be reasonable to do in eight uh, in 16 months and then they were told scrap it it has to be a globe spanning adventure that goes to multiple locations make it modern warfare 3 but we're not giving you extra time beyond what we would have given you to make it uh dlc right just taking Um, some notes for monday yep yep um when so and and this and this was the game that if i recall last week we had the uh, story about Microsoft 
putting it on like a splash on launch for yeah. the Xbox. Yeah. Um it ties into the that, you know, pre-release purchase thing and and this is something that I mentioned to Steph actually. I I wonder if this might come back to bite them on the ass in some respects. Mm. You know, these Oh, we're going to push you. Oh, you're so excited to play the game. You're going to play the game early. Oh, gosh. Well, it is going to be a smaller and probably significantly smaller percentage of people who are going to care enough to buy in early. And those are your hardcore people that you need to make sure are satisfied. And if they're not, they're also the people who are going to tell fucking everyone on earth that your game is shit. And I think that if they are not careful in how they approach these, they risk doing serious damage to major franchises on their launch weeks. The other thing I wasn't aware of with Modern Warfare 3 that I think like lends some credence to Bloomberg's report that it was originally going to be uh, basically DLC for Modern Warfare 2 is that it's not a standalone game when you purchase it. Like, you know how you would expect you if you bought a digital copy of Modern Warfare 3, Modern Warfare 3 would show up on, on your, your PlayStation or whatever next to Modern Warfare 2 in your little list of downloaded games. That's not how it works. Modern Warfare 2 no longer has an... If you have Modern Warfare 2 and you buy Modern Warfare 3... Modern Warfare 2 just becomes Modern Warfare 3. <laughs> you no longer have a Modern Warfare 2 on your thing anymore. I don't like what and, they're trying to normalise there. And and when you boot the game, you don't boot... Like, you click on Modern Warfare 3 and it doesn't go to Modern Warfare 3. What it does is it goes to something called Call of Duty HQ, from which you have to select which of the Call of Duties uh. that have been rolled into one you are launching and then launch into it. So you've got to go... If you want to play Modern Warfare 2 now, you've got to go to Modern Warfare 3, Call of Duty HQ, Modern Warfare 2. Uh, it's... It's... It's weird. This is the second big controversy of this type involving Activision Blizzard, because, of course, we had Overwatch 2, which many mm. argued um, should have just been an expansion to Overwatch. And, of course, Overwatch 2 is um, quite detested. Uh, by a lot of people, um, you know, I've done a Jimquisition on it. Like, there's a lot that's just not acceptable with Overwatch Two. Um, clearly, Activision is Activision, and they uh, are shameless and have, unfortunately, the name value to get away with a lot of things. Both, you know, really shitty products and really shitty treatment of of their employees. I. I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of turning a game into a portal into which they can plug in sequels. Not just from the silly hoops it can make a player jump through, but I think once you start trying to cloud what is a sequel and what isn't, what is a product worth paying full price for and what isn't, mm. what corners you can cut if you start building a sequel off the back of another game. Yeah, There's a lot of... of dire implications and this is the game industry we have seen time and time again if there is a way to exploit something if there is a way to offer less for more money they're gonna do it they have never done something because it's the right thing because it's a good thing to do i don't like that 
I don't like that. Yeah, I want to dig more into a bit of what's going on here. There's some there's some stuff that's like it seems a bit worrying. Other than that, we got we got a couple of stories about uh about Grand Theft Auto Six, and specifically uh, we we got some stories about uh, Strauss Zelnick, uh, who is take the CEO of Take Two. He's Um, an absolute dick, by the way. Well, he seems it from the stories we've got today. So Strauss Zelnick has been has decided this week is the time to basically pitch uh, Take Two's future as like all of the worst behaviors of the games industry. Uh, so we'll start with this one. Um, speaking at the Paley International Council Summit, uh, Zelnick said a lot of very glowing things about using AI to make NPCs in video games. <sighs> um, uh, originally reported by Inverse, uh, I'm reading reading from from Eurogamer. Interactions between players and NPCs are normally scripted, which Zelnick describes as generally not very interesting. Using AI to generate dialogue trees and add variety could make the interactions really interesting and fun. He talks about this a fair amount. He he really likes the idea of not having to pay people to write NPC dialogue. He followed this up uh, during an earnings call by saying that GTA 6 was completely protected from any delays if SAG-AFTRA happens to strike against voice actors. I don't know how he could know that. He's not SAG-AFTRA. If they choose to strike against him, he's not really got much control. Well, no, he's going to use scab labor. That's well, I mean, that's, that's yeah, how that he would knows. Be the answer, right? He knows that they're not going to have any respect for the unions, and they're yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um, or they have the recordings that they need already in the bank. Like, I mean, that's that's the other possibility is have they just done all the voice recordings already? But it's it's weird for him to jump out ahead of that to be like, oh, if SAG-AFTRA lists us as a struck company, it's gonna be fine. I think it's important for them to get out for them to get out ahead of that because that will allow them to keep their hype cycle going without mm. concerns from the audience. Because like the people who actually care about the workers, they're gonna not give a shit one way or another what take two has to say on the matter that isn't Mm. we're going to pay our workers but the people who only care about getting their game on time yeah for which there are many and importantly investors that's something that they want to make sure they can communicate to the investors that the game is going to come out on time uh yeah i it's important for them to say that but it is some fucking bullshit Uh, yeah so on some other Strauss Zelnick bullshit, um, he 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 decided to during during that same investor call uh, trot out one of people in the Steam reviews' favorite arguments to make: the discussion of a game should be X length versus X price. Oh God! Uh, I bet but- I bet there were so many ruined pairs of pants on that investor <laughs> call upon hearing that suggestion. Yeah. Um, yeah, very specifically, Zelnick isn't coming from, like, you know, Steam Steam reviews are usually going, this wasn't long enough for the price I paid. Zelnick is, uh, we should explicitly be setting the price based on game length. Uh, I, I will read, read his, uh, his quote. In terms of our pricing for any entertainment property, basically, 
The algorithm is the value of the expended entertainment usage, which is to say, per hour value, times the number of expected hours, plus the terminal value that's perceived by the customer in ownership, if the title is owned rather than rented or subscribed to. So he wants to charge you for an ex... ex I think a game is worth this amount per hour, and it's roughly this many hours long, plus a little fee on top if you want to actually own the thing, so we can't just take it back off you. That's how we should be pricing games. Uh... I... I mean... This... Now, this is a company that I, I think probably is doing a lot of its potential revenue calculations based on an idea of dollars per hour and that is is a function of of gta 5 um you know and and the way that it has been successful and i can see how you would come around to that idea um that that is what you plan to do and and you know what for online multiplayer experiences maybe it isn't the worst way in the world to think about it I get that, but I'm going to continue reading from Zelnik because oh um, explicitly, when he, when we let him keep talking, it does sound like what he ultimately wants is game length means I should be allowed to charge more for games. It sounds, it sounds like that's what he's getting at. Let, let me continue reading from him. By that standard, our prices are still very, very low because we offer many hours of engagement. The value of the engagement is very high, so I think the industry as a whole offers a terrific price-to-value opportunity for consumers. Yeah, if he thinks that games costing $70 is very, very low, and that they should be charging based on on game length, that really sounds like he wants to charge more. I think this is just smoke screening of of yeah. the you know like oh games are going up games are you know going up in price games are so expensive and they're like well wait a minute you're getting so much value per money and we're not charging you what it's actually worth maybe that's kind of where i i don't see i don't see that statement as being indicative of a new direction more a highlighting of how the present structure is quote unquote beneficial to consumers despite rising prices I I can see that, Reed. Either way, everything he says just sounds... He just sounds smarmy, every word he says. Yes. Yeah. Other stories we've got here. Uh, This is a nice little quick one. We talked the other other week about how Nintendo is like, hey, every report you've heard that there's a Switch 2 coming is telling lies. There's no such thing. Who said Switch 2? There's no such thing. What you want about? Definitely happening. Yeah. De- de- well, Nintendo says it's not happening. Yeah, I mean, definitely happening. But, but, I mean, it is definitely happening. Nintendo's saying a lot about next generation hardware for a company that definitely isn't planning next generation hardware. They just can't seem to stop talking quite directly about next gen hardware. The new one, they made a statement during an investor call in which they talked about, uh, let, let me find the quote here. Switch will be entering its eighth year in March 2024. We will continue to release new titles and content for Nintendo Switch without being bound by the traditional concept of the platform life cycle. Okay, you're going to keep releasing Switch software even when Switch 2 comes out. You're going you're to support them both for a bit, probably. For that next-gen console that you're definitely not making, despite continually talking about your plans for how you're going to move to it. Uh, so, yeah, Nintendo keeps talking about it because 
it seems really clear that next year is gonna like they're talking to investors about the switch isn't gonna stop receiving software next year because next year is probably when we're seeing the successor it's pretty transparent we got a few more stories of layoffs this week because of course we do they're constant at the moment according to a report from the verge unity is likely to announce layoffs I'm stunned. You know, by Q1 of next year. I know. Surprising, surprising. The short version of this is Unity is looking at cutting a bunch of staff and the framing of it internally within Unity seems to be, well, we couldn't make more revenue with the new runtime fee. No one would let us do that. So the only other option is to kick employees out of the company. It is unclear how many people will be affected, but it sure seems like the writing is on the wall for another round of Unity layoffs that are probably going to be laid at the feet of, well, you wouldn't let us make money. Other layoffs, Embracer's coming up again because of course they are, we can't go a week without talking about Embracer layoffs. This time, it's Free Radical, the studio that owns uh, Time Splitters. Mm-hmm. The Time Splitters studio. A studio that has never been able to catch a fucking break. Yeah, and these layoffs are not unsubstantial. It is said the studio is probably facing closure. Fucking like, hell. this is basically everyone at Free Radical is going to be gone. Yeah. I'm not sure another company exemplifies the problem this industry has had in the past couple of years more in terms of rapid unsustainable growth followed by layoffs because obviously Embracer threw so much money around hoarding so much and I'll throw my hands up like I was on the side of haha Square Enix sold a bunch of shit for a song fuck them the IP's better off in anybody else's hands and I'll throw my hands up that I was probably like too short definitely too short-sighted to consider the context of of where that would lead this aggressive growth yeah it is ultimately the case that where a lot of companies would wait until they definitely have money in before they use it to buy a company embracer preemptively bought a bunch of studios gambling on two billion from the saudis and that never showed up and they went, fuck, we don't have a plan B. And huge amounts of this industry are suffering based on them making a guess that didn't pan out. Yeah. I think so many of these layoffs are so similar. Embracer, I think, because it was so extreme in its buyouts, is is the exemplar, but Microsoft, you know, 10,000 layoffs this year, at the same time that it, it nabbed Bethesda and put tens of billions of dollars into buying Activision. And I stand by what I said in my video about it a few weeks back. Like, I think there should be restrictions on buyouts. If you're having layoffs, you shouldn't be allowed to fucking buy your new toys like that. Yeah. If you're having layoffs, you shouldn't be allowed to spend billions of dollars getting new studios. Yeah. It's disgusting. And of course, uh, Epic 
did the same. It didn't have Bandcamp for, what, a year even before getting rid of them? We say this all the time. There need to be more regulations and restrictions. I don't care who these days, like, bulk at that and are like, oh, people should be allowed to do what they want. Fuck it. Despite the legalese, corporations aren't people. They are rabid fucking animals if we want to liken them to anything. They are xenomorph-level predators and they should be muzzled. They should be restricted. People can feel shame or be shamed and be shunned. Mm. And you cannot do that to a corporation. It's agreed. Yeah, they're the tyranids. There's your. That's what I should have fucking said. They're mm. similar to xenomorphs, <laughs> but they are the tyranids. The one excuse people have to justify everything they do is also one of the biggest indictments. They exist to make money. Mm-hmm. In the same way the tyranid high fleets exist to consume all biomass in the fucking galaxy. Like. I am a despicable nerd. But, yeah, they just exist to make money. The problem there is when you are so single-minded in that goal, profit at any cost except your own, that is so devoid of context, devoid of humanity, Mm. devoid of morality, and that is not a good thing. Existing just to make money is not a good thing because that... Like you say, Conrad, robs you of shame. Uh, well, not mm-hmm. robs, because you never had it. It, it. it has burned out the ability for shame to manifest. Well, it, it, but it provides a convenient shield for that shame. Yes. Because the people behind it, they should feel that. But they don't have to be exposed to it, because it's not going on to them. It's going on to this company, and they can pull their investment out and put it into some other shitty company. They don't care. No. There are individuals at the top of these fucking corporate structures who are just as shameless, just as amoral, Mm -hmm. honestly, alien in their thinking, above a certain wealth level. If If you are a billionaire or a millionaire and you are still driven on a personal level to do nothing but amass wealth that you could not spend, that will look after your descendants set them up for fucking, well, whatever we've got left on this earth, I can't say forever anymore. But if you've done it, if you've won, and you are still hoarding money and and driven singularly by that pursuit, I struggle to see you as human because I can't relate to you on any human level. I can't relate to Bobby Kotick or Strauss Zelnick. And for that matter, they can't relate to you. Like, no. It's, it's not even their fault on some level that they can't relate to us. Because they, they, the relationship, the existence that we live, our idea of what the role and purpose of money in our lives is, these very well, yeah. basic bedrock social contracts do not exist in the same way for them as they do for us. I can attest to that on my level, which is like not even a blip on the radar of the wealth some of these guys have, but I grew up dirt poor. I've like been Mm. homeless. And yet I have been fucking fortunate enough to have a job that has kept me pretty well off, despite like 
the financial like debt I was put in, like the financial abuse that happened that I've talked about, I've still been fucking lucky enough to be comfortable through two fucking recessions, not wood. And I have lost some of that connection to my childhood, to, to how I grew up, like to how I was up until my mid twenties. You do lose touch. You do. And so when you are at that point, and let's face it, in a socioeconomic system where money directly relates to what you can accomplish and how powerful you are, in capitalism, a billionaire is at, on the level of a god. Mm-hmm. You are the closest thing mm-hmm. to a god on earth there can be. And I do not mean that as praise. I mean that yeah. in the, you know, gods can be... I mean, you're, you're fucking one of the Greek or Norse pantheon, like, renowned for being godlike, but a bunch of fucking bastards. But you're on that level. You are... The closest to a deity the Earth can have, or certainly our socioeconomic system can have. How are you going to relate to mortals? Mm -hmm. How are you going to relate to people who can't, for as close as you can without magic, click your fingers and make your every wish appear? Outside of the truly fantastical, you can do anything. You can buy Twitter because people on it were mean to you a bit. You can't relate. To someone who has rent to worry about, who has to worry about, like, what they're going to do in 10 years, because they're going to be fucking 50 and way too old to uh, maintain the pressures of YouTube channels. Sorry. Um, (laughs) You don't have human concerns, what I would consider the typical human experience. You don't you can't have that and because it seems to turn people so cruel and so callous and so inhumane i struggle to see billionaires especially as people i worry about saying that sometimes because you know dehumanization is is pretty you know grim but i can't relate to that on a human level the things Elon Musk says and does, the things Bobby Kotick says and does, it's not what I recognise as human activity and parlance. It's not. Mm. I don't. I can't relate to it as a human being with human needs. Yeah, I mm. I do have a silver lining though when it comes to all of this consolidation and subsequent layoffs and industry drain of talent is that I suspect that 2025 is going to be a very, very, very good year for indie games. Yeah, I hope so. I think we're going to see some really interesting shit. Hell yeah. If any of them want to yeah. give me any writing gigs, by the way, mm. my rates are incredibly reasonable. <laughs> and mine are even and more And I'm so. really fucking good. Yeah, Con- <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, hit up Conrad first, because <laughs> you, you'll get a fucking bargain. It's like me with uh. wrestling. My fucking tag partner Priscilla laughed when she found out how much I charge. So um, hit me up for cheap wrestling. Hit Conrad up for cheap writing. <laughs> and a what great t-shirt, by the mm. way. Uh, designed mm. um, 
with Z-Manzilla's incredible artistry. I realise we're not at the shilling part yet, but <laughs> thegymporium.com, we've got a new Pounding It shirt. It looks like it could be on a pog. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like a cross between a pog and like like those like 80s metal LP covers with things that have big tongues and stuff. I mean, it reminds me of some, some guar art that I've seen over the years. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. I, I yeah. really dig it. It's a cool design. It's really good. And we'll be doing more of those. Yeah. So, nice. yeah. Basically, give us stuff. <laughs> we'll give you stuff. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, we still haven't finished the layoffs for this week. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we don't have to go into it much. Humble Games is laying off people as well. Uh, proud subsidiary of Amazon, the dot com. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so that that's 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 it for layoffs. Uh, we got we got through the layoffs bit. No, there's one other layoff that we need to talk about. Actually, oh, uh, yeah, there's which a very one? specific. It's a layoff of one that I care about. Um, mm. our friend Jonathan Holmes. Oh yes, bless his heart, dear friend. One of the most dedicated, compassionate, capable people that I know. He is in a spot needing employment he has managed large teams he has uh decades of social work experience and management experience project management if you know of something in your organization or someone else's organization that needs a figure like that this man is a god like we joke about it a lot you know an an absolute gem of a human being Oh, one of the nicest and most wonderful people I've ever had the privilege to know. And I truly mean that. Mm-hmm. Like, for all the fun we have, like, when we work together on, like, things like Boston's Favourite Son, there are few people that, like, see the world he does and work as hard as him and is just so pleasant yeah. to work with. I I fucking love that guy. I, I love him. Anytime I have a ch- an opportunity to have a conversation with that man, I walk away being like, my day is better for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, please. Uh, he's uh, non Trotsky on the Twitters. And um, get get in touch with him if, if you have anything yeah. that might might work. Okay, so, uh, sorry, other news. No, 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 that's all good. We got, uh, we got one last uh, news story this week, and... This, I think, will be of interest to you both. So, we talked a while back about the fact that, like, PlayStation was making a big push for live service games going forward. Um, There was a point where I I think the suggestion was that they had, like, uh, like 20 or so live service games in development that they expected to release over, like, five years. Um... Yeah, it seems like that plan isn't going as planned. Sony has now halved the number of live service games it plans to release by March 2026. Uh, Sorry, it was from 12 was the original number, down to now 6. Back in February of 2022, they said they aimed to launch over 10 new live service games. This was right around the time that they acquired uh, Bungie. But as part of their latest financial earnings call, it has been explained that this is not the plan necessarily anymore there's not a lot of explanation um given as to why other than game quality should be the most important thing 
is a little bit of a, st- a little bit of a quote. Um, they still want to go into live services, but maybe twelve live services in the next three years isn't a good huh, idea. Somebody's read the room. A- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somebody's worked out that. That's like four live services a year, and nobody has time for four live services a year in their gaming lineup. It's hard to imagine I'm making time for two. I struggle to find time well, for that's, one. Well, that's the thing. Like, I, and this is, this is, like, this is what we do. Like, this, this, th- yeah. this is the thing that we do. I can't imagine being a normal person. Where would you find the time? And, and then, and then if you have yeah. a family, like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, I I can't imagine. I can't. It doesn't seem live services have never seemed sustainable in any respect to me. You know, MMOs are are a very real commitment and they manage to but that has to be your hobby to some extent. And for a lot of people it it is their hobby and it's a great one and cool. But the idea that you could have dozens of these running concurrently between you know like four publishers and that they could even half of them could be a success is mind-boggling yeah on that note that warner brothers wonder woman game that's in development sounds like it's a live service so uh, the industry hasn't quite worked out yet where warner brothers is such a fucking mess across the board oh i hate that company i like, I made a Doomquisition on it once because, like, everyone looks at Ubisoft, EA, and Activision as the shit heels. The designated shit. Well, not even designated. They are shit heels. But the big three shit heels of the game industry. And I've always argued Warner Brothers needs to be up there. People don't see it purely as a game publisher because it's not. It's not, but it's shitty in the other things it does too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a game publisher, like, if we're just looking at the game side of it, it is up there. It is not just a trifecta of shit. Like, it is a quadrology, and Warner Brothers is up there. Their embrace of live services, the things they've done with microtransactions, I believe they were the first when online passes had their brief sort of reign of tyranny. Yeah. They were the first to do what I called an offline pass, because, like, gating single-player content. They are terrible. And... Hey, never forget the fact that uh, when trans people were like, hey, mm-hmm. hey, do you have any comment on Rowling's transphobia? The official executive top of the company response was, well, she's allowed to have her opinions, much like, you know, favourite sandwich. You know, that's a similar comparison to make. Uh, well, and and oh, they have brothers. been the worst offender um, among the uh, consolidating streaming platforms in terms of how they've managed their content, um, the, the, mm. the project cancellations just for tax purposes. Yeah, we, we just had this week, it was, uh, uh, Acme, uh, what's it called? It's Coyote versus, Coyote versus Acme, I think it was. Yeah, the John canceled. Cena film. Well, now it, that's, they've, that's, they've turned course on that now. And apparently they've decided that it it can see release. They've given it to the director to find distribution on it. So it, yeah, and you know you know why that one happened. I I I think because it was John Cena. Well, specifically, <laughs> a big part of what well, part of it's John Cena, and part of it I think is a bunch of people who worked on that film just started posting behind the scenes content of the creation of that film without permission, uh, in order to go. Look how fucking completed this work of art I've worked years on was. 
It had gone through test audiences. And it reviewed well. It reviewed in the 90s. Like, yeah. that is fucking... That, this was not going to get an Academy Award, but that's where Academy Award winning films land in terms of audience reaction and test screenings. This was a crowd-pleasing thing that they that should be a surefire hit for them. But, but you know, money... <laughs> I want my tax money. That's more important than art. I... Uh, yeah. Warner Brothers is has a big list of Well, and here's the problem, too. If they put it out and they make a bunch of money on it, they gotta pay the taxes on that. So it's yeah. a lose-lose. Fucking assholes. Yep. Uh, but there we go. We did, we did the news. Uh, I have mm? one thing that came up. Mm? Ooh, Sorry, to yeah. pull a Columbo. <laughs> yeah, oh, one, one more thing. One more thing, my wife loves one you. One more thing. Um, I just got an email, and this is interesting Ooh. news insofar as it pertains to the Jimquisition and the assets it uses, because obviously mm-hmm. we use a stock library for some of our footage, and I especially use its music library, Storyblocks is the website we use. And I was a little concerned because I got an email talking about them updating their policy for how to use things, and the word AI came up. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read this because I just kind of like it. We're excited in advances in artificial intelligence that are speeding up creators' workflows, including how we're using AI to improve search functionality, which... eh. But... However, we see generative AI as a legal and ethical risk for customers and believe it poses an inherent threat to artists and the creator economy. A new license therefore prohibits the use of any Storyblocks assets to train AI or machine learning tools or as part of projects that are created entirely by AI functionality. They still say that you can use stuff in AI-powered tools for editing with their assets, but I just thought that was kind of nice to see that is nice they have said a very similar thing for nfts as well they don't want their assets used for scraping crawling resale as nfts so that's prohibited as well in fact all of their changes they're not going to affect me and the ones that are relevant to my interest are somewhat positive well that's nice to hear nice yeah so good on that like I love Storyblocks' music library. Um, most of the backing music I use on the Jimquisition comes from there. I've used it for Spectrum, for wrestling, which, by the way, is coming back December 17th. Ooh. Very close to Blackpool. So, yeah, that was just a nice thing. And I thought it'd be a nice little positive thing to end on. Just, that's, that's, yeah, that's good to hear. The stock library we, library we use on the show has uh, come out at least somewhat creator-leaning on AI. Not 100% sadly, but compared to the shit we hear. So yeah, that's good. That's good. Yay. Speaking of content that does not use AI and is created by the hard work of a talented individual, Laura. (gasps) What, me? Please tell us about your content, which is completely AI-free. Exactly. You can find me and all of my AI-free content at Laura K Buzz in all the places. Twitter, you, Twitch, YouTube, TikTok, Patreon, Blue Sky, Mastodon, all the places you'll find me. Just search Laura K Buzz. Uh, Patreon, that's the one that pays the bills. As little as a dollar a month over there supports me doing the stuff I do. Um, the big thing that's coming up is about two weeks from now, on the 28th of November, uh, the Gender Euphoria audiobook will finally be out. 
Yeah. You can listen to eight plus hours of me talking about trans stuff in your ears. I think it, it clocks in at eight hours, nine minutes. Uh, so go, go check that out. Find out what I spent three days in a booth doing. Uh, including at one point, there's an essay about silly voices in which I do a silly voice. So you'll get to hear the voice uh-huh. that the book that was written about in the book. And that's, that's a neat thing. Uh, so that's November 28th, basically everywhere that, that does audiobooks. Uh, you, you can find it basically everywhere. What about you, Conrad? Where are you on the internet? Oh, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky. You can hang out with me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thatconradzimmerman. Um, did a uh, audiobook reading earlier this week. Um, doing the picture of Dorian Gray. That book is hot. Ooh. Mm. Mm. Sexy. You can buy anti-capitalist propaganda that I make and Jimquisition merchandise, including the new Poundin' It tea. God, it's so good. It's a really good look. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You can get that at mercenarycreative.com or the gymporium.com. Uh, and everything that I do online gets supported at Patreon dot com slash fist shark and you know who else has one of them their patreons it's james stephanie sterling that is absolutely correct um patreon.com slash jimquisition which supports any uh related content that's uh this podcast the jimquisition show and the reviews on the gymporium.com uh recent reviews over there we've got one for that Skull Island, that terrible King Kong game. We've got one for Alan Wake too. Don't read the fucking comments. We're gonna get those <laughs> moderated very soon, and I'm sorry that uh, the worst people on earth uh, decided to lend their little opinions. Um, there's one more as well that that I did recently that I liked. Uh, Robocop, Robocop, Rogue, Rogue City. We got a review of that too. So do check those out. Um, it's very good writing, if I do say so myself. Uh, the best that ChatGBT has to offer, if you believe the Zelda fans. Um, that's it. Thank you all so much. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Shit. Uh, December 17th, Leighton. Uh, we'll have details coming soon about the new Spectrum show, which will be uh, in conjunction with PCW, um, where I'm the women's champion. So that the venue is so nice. Um, so we'll have details on that soon. My next wrestling booking is november 25th so that's coming up that'll be the weekend after this one coming uh true grip a place where i've really sort of made my mark as the place where i put on fucking bangers um back in leeds which is one of my favorite crowds so true grip wrestling in leeds i'm going to be in a fatal four-way with lana Austin, zz and helen campbell three of the best women wrestlers in the country so that is going to be another fucking banger so if you can get there do watch that otherwise we'll see you next week thank you all so much bye bye bye